Hi, everyone, and welcome to today's episode of the Journal of Legislation and Public Policies podcast here at NYU Law. I'm Alex Rose, and today I'm joined by a very special guest and a resident expert to discuss the topic of deepfakes, an issue that this journal covered in its March 2nd symposium. So without any further ado, I'll introduce our guest. Britt Paris is a professor at Rutgers University and a critical informatics scholar focusing on methods from discourse analysis and qualitative social science to study how groups build, use, and understand information systems. Now, in September 2019, Britt also published Deepfakes and Cheapfakes, the Manipulation of Audio and Visual Evidence, which was published by the Data and Society Research Institute. So we're very fortunate to have you here today, and thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me. So I just want to jump right into it. What is a deepfake? Because I'm sure there are many lay people listening here, and I am one myself, and we aren't quite sure what the technical definition is. Right. So in recent months, headlines that you're probably all familiar with have chronicled how at computer science research universities, computer scientists have built neural networks and machine learning models to turn audio or audiovisual clips into realistic but completely faked videos or audio pieces um, commonly referred to as deepfakes. Increasingly, um, free applications paired with consumer-grade software are used by amateur communities, and these may be the ones that you're more familiar with that pop up often in pornography sites um, and, you know, in various sort of uh, more creative uh, spaces online. Um, but these are, uh, you know, consumer-grade software technologies used by amateur communities to make realistic videos of people doing and saying things that never actually happened. And you mentioned that this is being used for any number of purposes, but are there any in particular that are you are really concerned with or that you're seeing a higher uptick in usage? Is it political messages or is it things like pornography right. or anything in between? Right. So... The thing that uh, is most concerning to me is when these videos uh, are taken up as evidence of something. Whenever these manifest in pornography, uh, they often, not always, but sometimes they uh, sort of masquerade as revenge porn. Uh, Mm. So somebody takes a number of images from, you know, a classmate's face from Facebook, and then they feed it into one of these um, consumer-grade Uh, software applications or open source software applications that are available through GitHub and they develop a you know pornography video of a classmate that you know is used then to send to the classmates parents or you know something like that that will be uh, manifest or used as evidence against that classmate but you know has no basis in reality. Um, I also want to mention that 96% 96% of uh, deep fakes that exist mm-hmm. exist in pornography. Um, and so we see very much where uh, this technology is being used, where these amateur communities are sort of focused on developing um, their craft in, uh, <laughs> right. let's say. Um, and, you know, I don't want to say, you know, all pornography is bad, but, um, you know, whenever it's increasingly easy to take these images of, say, you know, a classmate or, you know, images of anyone that exists online, you know, you can make these deep fakes using these open source technologies mm-hmm. with just a few, um, I think just a few hundred, uh, you know, images of a person. So, you know, anyone with an online profile is fair game to be faked, right? And so, um, you know, 
sort of uh, more playful instances of this that probably are fine, but whenever these images, uh, these videos are wielded as, wielded as evidence, that's where it becomes an issue for me. And we know from the history of the ways in which images have been used um, in these sort of online contexts, uh, you know, from the beginning of sort of graphical user interfaces and the ways in which, you know, various communities and forms built, uh, you know, various identities around, uh, you know, sharing images a lot of the time. Um, you know, these, uh, the images were wielded in contexts that were, you know, very pornographic. If there were women in these forums, you know, sort of speaking out about the way that women were treated or talked about in these forums, mm -hmm. uh, they were, um, you know, faked using, you know, uh, old time manipulation, you know, image manipulation technologies and posted, you know, these images were posted in the forum and then, you know, these uh, people who were, Primarily, you know, it was directed against people uh, who were LGBTQ individuals, uh, mm -hmm. people of color, uh, women broadly um, within all categories, and people speaking out against sort of the status quo or the, you know, uh, traditional structural, structural hierarchies uh, at that time were targeted uh, with these, you know, manipulated images. Um, and we see that this is really very much a continuation of you know, that old practice sort of with uh, new technological dressing, so, so to speak. two follow-up questions that come from everything you just said there. The first is, you mentioned that you feed images into this software, right, and then it creates this deepfake. Is it as simple as that? Can you literally just compile a bunch of different images of somebody and maybe some voice recordings of them, and then whatever algorithm gets incorporated, you will produce this product? I mean, essentially, at a very basic level, that's what's <laughs> happening. Um, that's about as basic as I can do. But, uh, you know, there are sort of very sophisticated things that you must do in terms of like getting that face grafted on right. to the you know moving image appropriately and having the face sort of move in the same way um, so it's not that simple and it's becoming easier with these open source technologies even though you know they'll proliferate and then get shut down you know these models still exist and you know you can build off of these models especially if you know where they're at and how to, how to manipulate them there are some, you know, pretty serious issues that deal with, uh, you know, uh, democracy in America around these. But there are also, you know, ways to think about this that uh, sort of grounded in, um, you know, the history of policy. So, you know, these people are public figures and, you know, whatever they do, whatever they post, uh, whatever is posted about them, um, you know, it has it bears a sort of higher level of scrutiny like everybody's writing about these cheap fake videos these you know yeah. the Bloomberg video the Pelosi video etc and you know platforms have said you know we're going to allow to keep you know allow this stuff to stay up because this even this type of like image manipulation and it being available and on the record is something that is useful to people and the citizenry whenever they're thinking about you know, who is engaging in what types of activities and why and what are the arguments behind it because they're elected officials and these are sort of arguments and uh, discourse around, you know, American democracy and elected officials. Whereas these, you know, 90% of, 96% of uh, deep fakes that exist that are pornographic or, um, you know, uh, any sort of deep fake or cheap fake that shows or it sort of uh, pretends to be evidence of somebody doing something that they never said uh, who's not a public figure that's what I'm most worried about mm -hmm. um, because 
while public figures, you know, sort of have, um, you know, the press on their side, you know, public scrutiny on their side, generally, um, you know, have the economic resources and, you know, time resources to refute this in court um, and force, you know, takedowns and things like that. People who, you know, are targeted who may not have the economic resources that, you know, wouldn't make any headlines if, uh, you know, somebody posted revenge porn about them or something like that. Those are the people I think that need the most protection, mm -hmm. um, and that's sort of what, that is what worries me most. So you feel that regulation, if it exists in some form, should really be oriented more toward the individual deep fakes, the 96% that we're discussing? as opposed to the sort of larger scale, perhaps political ones, where, to your point, people do have the resources to rebut these things. But aren't you a little concerned, given what happened in 2016 with the proliferation of fake information all over, you know, any form of social media site, um, that was at least, if not unchecked, at least believed by a large percentage of the population, right. that even if people with resources say something to the effect of, this is fake and I can go after you in court, that it's not going to matter in public opinion. Yeah, and I mean, here's what I want to talk about whenever we're talking about policy uh, around these things, is that what is different about these, you know, fake videos, whether they be deep fakes or cheap fakes now, um, you know, what is different about these videos versus, you know, uh, videos of, say, you know, the same types of things happening, you know, in the era of television or film or right. something like that is the scale and the speed to which, you know, we are subjected to these messages and we have to sort of interpret these very quickly as they scale up in the discourse, um, you know, sort of uh, in ways that are baffling sometimes, right? Mm -hmm. um, so what makes it different is the mode of, or sort of the medium, uh, the mode of communication, which is social media and social media platforms um, who are making enormous amounts of money off of this novel content and off of this misinformation. Um, and I think that policy should be directed toward holding them accountable more so than punishing individuals for uh, you know, manipulating or, uh, you know, sort of playing with or more nefariously sort of manipulating uh, images and videos uh, to some, you know, either very playful or nefarious end, right? Uh, because the same thing happens uh, whenever we're talking about, um, you know, various modes of policy that seek to punish individuals with either fines or, you know, minimal jail time or something mm -hmm. like that. The people who are engaging with this stuff and it gets determined that they were, you know, nefariously trying to impersonate someone or um, make it masquerade as evidence in some way, uh, you know, they're the people who are going, you know, if they don't have the economic resources or the time to refute this in court, they're going to be the ones that are punished, whereas, you know, people who are more powerful um, and doing the same types of things, say, you know, to throw elections or something like that, uh, you know, it's, gonna, it's not going to stick. Um, so they're not really going to be punished in the same way, necessarily. Uh, or they won't feel the punishment um, as, uh, as much as as others. So there's that. There is another part of the question that you asked, I think, but I... Oh, well, it's okay. I think this segues perfectly into something that I want to talk to you about, which is a bill that is currently before Congress, which is a very long acronym, but is the Deepfakes Accountability Act. Mm -hmm. And 
you know, you were just discussing who should be regulated, who should be potentially held accountable for these things, whether it be the individual user, which you mentioned is very hard to track down, or it be the organization itself that is hosting all of this, so a YouTube or something like that. Do you feel that this bill adequately goes after the people that need to be regulated? Should people be regulated in this way? What are your thoughts on the bill? Yeah, I I think, you know, I gave some comments about this, and I think that, you know, it's very difficult to go after platforms uh, for spreading this type of misinformation, and particularly for making money off of spreading this type of disinformation, right? (laughs) Um, So I think that... There's certainly and yeah, is that because sorry is that just here. lobbying interest or mm-hmm. why do you think that is we just don't want to punish them for making money off of this? Um, I mean it's a very thorny issue, right? So a lot of people talk about abridging Section Two Thirty yep. to uh, try to um, you know remediate a lot of the problems here, um, but uh, or you know sort of thinking about how the First Amendment allows or doesn't allow you know various types of uh, you know posting videos or you know mm-hmm. hosting videos as speech um, and there are thorny issues entailed with all of these because you know uh, I mean I'm sure I don't have to explain to you the, the thorny issues of policy and the ways in which you know uh, one uh, you know in one instance something can be sort of uh, useful and good to particular communities but you know used uh, in any other you know sort of multiplicity of ways can be very harmful sort of uh, at broader scales. Absolutely. Um, and so I think that's where things are getting stuck right now um, is because, yeah, there is, you know, a very high level uh, <laughs> lobbying campaign being waged um, in D.C. right now over, you know, maintaining Section 230. Um, so turning back to the bill itself, what do you like about the bill? What do you think needs improving? What would you add in or potentially remove if you could? Yeah, I think the bill is a nice first step in terms of getting it, you know, something um, on the books and in front of legislators in terms of regulating disinformation and disingenuous content Mm -hmm. uh, that circulates on social media. Uh, again, I think the focus on punishing individuals can certainly, you know, detract some from, you know, doing some more nefarious things that they might not feel uh, or that otherwise, you know, they wouldn't be disencouraged from doing this type of thing. Uh, but I do think that we need to think of sort of better and more effective ways of punishing the people who are powerful in this situation and people who are profiting from this situation even existing to begin with. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and, you know, I don't have all of the answers for this, but I think certainly holding these platforms more accountable through a number of methods is important. And, you know, legislation is one, uh, you know, public pushback is another, um, you know, other campaigns, uh, you know, within these tech companies might be useful. Um, in terms of, you know, issues, sort of uh, staving off issues around, you know, manipulated videos and images in particular. But I think this 
issue of manipulated images and videos is just sort of a microcosm for this larger problem um, and a way that we can sort of attack this larger problem and think about uh, the ways in which uh, you know, this small issue, not even a small issue, like this issue around manipulated content and disinformation mm -hmm. sort of uh, interpolates or points to, uh, you know, this much larger system that's been, you know, pretty much allowed free reign over, uh, you know, communication media in general and it's not been regulated whatsoever. Now, you just mentioned a bunch of different pathways to affect change here, one of which was the legislative fix, which you don't seem that bullish on at this point, potentially naming and shaming or trying to change within the organizations. What do you feel amongst these options is actually going to be the most effective and what should we be directing our energy toward if we're worried about regulating this? No, man, I wish I had a perfect answer. Um, <laughs> I feel like there's not one, though. You know, people I've been talking with, various groups I've been talking to that are, you know, sort of disproportionately affected by these things um, or disproportionately affected by disinformation online, um, you know, fake videos, etc. Um, you know, they say that, you know, for a number of years they haven't trusted anything that they see on social media and they've really sort of taken a step back and are not using it as much. Um, and then other groups are like, this is the only way we can reach our, you know, our audiences. So thinking about what that means in terms of uh, the ways in which, um, you know, we are interacting and engaging with uh, the people around us um, mm -hmm. and building solidarity <laughs> in various ways. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I don't have an answer um, and enough. I don't want to individualize it either. Um, but I think that's one sort of way that we as, you know, the use public of users can think about uh, these problems. Um, I also think that, uh, you know, pushing for platform accountability, um, you know, whether that's signing petitions or, you know, calling your local legislator around these issues, mm -hmm. uh, that obviously can be helpful. Um, but I really think, you know, I think Mutali's doing some really good work, uh, Mutali Nakanda, uh, in terms of uh, training congressional staffers to uh, do a better job of um, articulating the actual issues at play um, so that whenever we have these, um, you know, congressional hearings on misinformation or, you know, Libra or, you know, any mm -hmm. of the others that we've seen recently, um, you know, these people who run and own these platforms are being held accountable by, you know, the highest offices in the land instead of just sort of, uh, you know, being able to uh, skate through relatively unscathed because, uh, you know, the legislators don't know what's going on and don't know how to ask the right questions and don't know how to adjudicate any of this stuff effectively, right? So there's that too. I yep. think that that's a really important thing that she's doing. Um, and I think it has the you know, it has the capability to really enact some um, important change. And I think we might already be seeing some of it. I think, you know, in recent years, you know, if you even think about the difference between 2017 and 2019 in the way that these uh, questions are asked in congressional hearings, you see a sort of dramatic improvement hmm. um, in the ways in which, you know, people are going after, say, Mark Zuckerberg at the Libra hearing. Um, and actually knowing a little bit of what they're talking about. Knowing a little bit point. of what they're talking about, having some examples, having some stories. And, and so I think like anything we can do to um, sort of push legislators in that direction is a good move. Mm -hmm. um, 
And, you know, other than that, I have very much, you know, sort of pie-in-the-sky lofty ideas about getting, you know, corporate money out of, um, you know, government. But And then I want to take a step back, and because we are of the Journal of Legislation and Public Policy, talk to you a little bit about the political sphere some more. We know certainly that misinformation played a large role in the 2016 elections. What, if any, and how much of a role do you see deepfakes playing in 2020? Or cheat fakes, for that matter. Yeah, I mean, I think cheat fakes, we've already seen it. Cheat fakes will play much more of a role than deep fakes have, and cheat fakes also played a role in 2016. Like, that's. And this is not endemic to the U.S. exclusively, right? This is happening around the world. It's happening around the world, and, you know, uh, there are much more sort of widespread and well documented cases than have happened in Brazil, India, um, to name just a couple. But. You can sort of uh, sort of sit there and think about the possibilities for a second and drive yourself crazy, right? Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> there are a lot of uh, you know really terrible things that can happen. Anything from you know uh, a public official, you know somebody who is uh, you know masquerading as a public official doing something really terrible, you know in advance of say you know a primary or you know hours before an election, and people aren't able to effectively vet if that's real or not. Um, I think what's more likely to happen is, you know, something, uh, things on the level of the cheat fakes that we saw of mm-hmm. Michael Bloomberg, right? Things that just skate under, you know, uh, the platforms, content moderation policies that maybe don't get flagged in time as misleading or something like that. Yep. Um, you know, uh, I think that type of thing will be far more prevalent. And beyond elections themselves... Do you see either deep fake or cheap fakes as being potentially hazardous for things like national security or for undermining U.S. foreign policy? You know, I, maybe this is just taking this to its extreme, but I guess I want to go there and I want to see like what this can actually lead to. Yeah, I mean, that's what people have been worried about. Yeah. That's, you know, the the headlines since 2018 have been you know, fomenting panic around just these things. Mm-hmm. We haven't seen anything yet. They're unregulated, but we haven't seen anything yet. So that leads me to believe that, you know, the barriers to entry are so high or that people are paying, you know, extra attention to this and platforms uh, and, you know, the content moderation policy is such that, you know, these things are caught. Or, um, but, you know, there's no way to know whether or not that's actually happening because platforms are, and platform content moderation is a sort of very secretive black box. Mm -hmm. We can't know much about it. Um, But whatever's happening, you know, we don't see these sort of nefarious uses of uh, deep fakes manifesting in that way. Uh, That's not to say that it's not possible. And as, you know, if you look on... Uh, ARXIV, which is where unpublished computational science papers get uploaded, and um, there are tons and tons of new machine learning technologies uh, being used to detect and develop deep fakes, mm-hmm. and, you know, you can sort of see it being an arms race in terms of, you know, detection, uh, you know, sort of um, technical detection of these deep fakes and, you know, the ratcheting up of the, you know, realistic qualities of these deep fakes to evade uh, detection. Um, and so, yeah, I don't really have a good answer. I feel like uh, we haven't seen it yet, which gives me some uh, hope. Uh, but, you know, 
the hope that I have is always tenuous. Okay, fair enough. Uh, you mentioned detection, and obviously the technological arms race between trying to overcome that detection and then trying to make the detection better than that. Is that being done by computer scientists who then just publish a paper? Is there a private sector investment in this kind of thing? Is the government trying to invest in this kind of thing? Who is doing this? All of and the above. All of the above. Yes. Do you believe um, that there should be like a baseline technology that's ubiquitous in society that we all have as a plug-in on our computer that can almost immediately detect at least a low-budget deep or cheap fake? Um, I think detecting a more sophisticated deep fake would be easier. Um, <laughs> Explain. Uh, just because um, the ways in which, you know, like we were talking about before, like cheap fakes... You know, every just, video that you could encounter would be a cheap fake then because it just uses, you know, very basic, you know, right. editing software. Every video you watch uses, you know, c cutting and, uh, you know, inserting, you know, objects and things like that, right? Um, but the deep fake has a Technology footprint. can't interpret the truth content yeah. of a video, right? So I don't know if that's really the right answer because mm -hmm. I, it only would be useful for that, you know, very sort of small subset of, like, deep fake videos that you can uh, use technical detection uh, to, mm -hmm. you know, find or seek out. Okay, so in terms of detection software, then, do we think at this point best left to governmental organizations, law enforcement, or potentially private organizations that focus on this particular topic? Um, I mean, that's where it's at. I think, you know, there's no harm in developing sort of very basic, you know, I hate to use this term because it's very loaded, but like basic media literacy skills um, and sort of reinforcing those basic media literacy skills uh, for the public. And mm -hmm. like, sure, you know, if you want to develop a browser application that detects deepfakes, that's fine. Go for um, it. But it doesn't get at the problem of deepfakes or right. what, you know, what people are worried about with deepfakes. Uh, it only gets it sort of a very narrow conception of what that problem is mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, doesn't sort of address the whole range of problems that deepfakes are involved with. So I want to end with a more general question for you. Um, specifically, what should people take away from this? What is the major concern with deepfakes? Is it the affected communities? Is it the proliferation of this technology going into various different forms of society? What should we really take at its essence from this? Yeah, I think we should pay attention to uh, the power dynamics by which uh, evidence is sort of reified as evidence, right? So when we we're talking about uh, the ways in which, you know, different groups based on uh, you know, sort of how much economic and political and discursive power they have mm -hmm. could be, you know, uh, uh, sort of uh, exonerated in the realm of, you know, both law and policy, but also sort of um, within the realm of, you know, uh, the court of, uh, you know, sort of public adjudication um, based on, you know, how well they, you know, make their case with their endless amounts of resources, right? right. Um, and so I think, you know, we do need to attend to those people who are generally left out uh, of that group of very powerful people. Um, and, you know, if we think about this, like I said, historically, that's, uh, you know, women, LGBTQ individuals, 
uh, people of color, people who are, you know, questioning powerful systems, um, who don't have, you know, the economic resources uh, behind them or, you know, the sort of systems of power behind them to uh, protect themselves. Um, so that's what I think uh, the most important thing to take away from all of this is, as well as, you know, the solutions to this can't just be technical. This problem isn't just technical. Um, it's quite a bit, uh, very much a social problem. Mm -hmm. um, and we need to think about the ways that truth is sort of, um, you know, very much instantiated within uh, social and cultural interpretation patterns. Um, and this isn't something that technologies can, uh, you know, get at, at present. I don't think they ever will. And if they will, it'll be, you know, quite a bit in the future. Though I could be wrong. Um, so those are the things that I would like to impress upon people. You know, the sort of power dynamics whenever we're thinking about audiovisual evidence, as well as the ways in which interpretation exceeds, uh, you know, technical detection. Great. Well, thank you so much for being here today. I think this will be really helpful for everybody moving forward. Um, and again, everyone should check out Deep Fakes and Cheap Fakes, The Manipulation of Audio and Visual Evidence by Britt Paris. So Britt, thanks so much. And we will talk to you all again sometime soon. Thanks. Thanks for having me.